pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we look at a, a relatively long text. I mean, actually, it's a really long text. I pray that you'd make us attentive. I pray that you'd make it clear. I pray that you'd open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, this week I came across an article and then someone sent it to me and I thought, well, I should probably read it. And um, it's from CNN. I want to open with this uh, from October 23rd. And CNN writes, Earthquake experts worldwide express shock at the manslaughter convictions of six Italian scientists who failed to predict the deadly La Aquila earthquake, warning that the decision could severely harm future research. Two scientists resigned their posts at the government's disaster preparedness agency Tuesday after a court in L'Aquila uh, sentenced six scientists and a government official to six years in prison. The court ruled Monday that the scientists failed to accurately communicate the risk of the 2009 quake, which killed more than 300 people. That's pretty wild, isn't it? So scientists are sent to prison for six years because they failed to inadequately, inadequately warn people of the earthquake that was to come. How you feel like right now after I read that is how the whole book of Revelation sort of should make us feel at some level. Why is that? Because the whole book of Revelation is really about making us into the ones who are responsible for warning others. Remember, as we looked at this book, it's basically it's three kinds of literature. The book of Revelation is a letter to seven churches. On the other hand, it's an apocalypse. What's, what does an apocalypse do? An apocalypse reveals something. So this reveals the person and work of Jesus. And finally, it's a, it's a prophecy. And what does a prophecy do? A prophecy is always trying to get some kind of action out of us. In other words, even if it predicts the future, it's looking to move us some way. It's either it wants repentance from us or faith or belief or something. And so what is this prophecy of the book of Revelation trying to get us to do? And I think it's pretty clear as we've been in it for almost a year. It's trying to get us to be outwardly faced. If you don't like that word, you can pick another word. But it, whatever it is, it's trying to get us to, to be motivated to take the gospel to the people outside of our church, outside of our four walls, and to engage the world with this thing called the gospel of Jesus. Remember I told you the purpose of the book of Revelation is to basically teach us that Jesus has won in the past, Jesus will win in the future, but he's even winning right now. So as we jump into this text, you know, last, I wasn't here last week and someone gave me, was giving me a hard time at the first service and I said, you're going you're to eat those words because basically you're going to get last week and this week all at the same time today. So for, you're forewarned now. We're doing all of chapter 18. Remember, when we get, by the time you get into chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 of Revelation, you're basically starting to boil things down. We're almost getting to the end. And you begin to see this distinction being drawn between two women and two cities, right? There's the harlot of Babylon and there's the bride of Christ. There's the city of God and there's the city of man. And if you remember back, from way back during the, when we did the intro stuff, that basically in these seven churches, all the, the Christians that lived on, in the Roman Empire were basically squeezed from three different sides. They were squeezed from a political side, they were squeezed from an economic 
side and squeezed from a, a religious side, and, and, and in essence making it very difficult to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. How that might work, let's say you were in a carpenter's union or something, and you would go to a, a big carpenter's dinner, and they would have a, a party, and you would have to imbibe, and then at some point you would be asked to swear allegiance to Caesar or swear allegiance to one of the patron deities of that union or trade guild. And as a Christian, instead of you couldn't say Caesar is Lord, you're only supposed to say Jesus is Lord. And if you wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, then you couldn't be a part of the union. And if you weren't part of the union, then you couldn't work. So on one hand, when you look through the, the church history, there's a lot of persecution that happens because people just didn't like Christians, and so they therefore kill them. On the other hand, a lot of the persecution is simply economic. You can't work, you can't feed your family, and so you're, there's a lot of temptation to compromise. And as we looked at the seven churches, there were some churches that compromised, with the Roman Empire, some churches that didn't even try with the Roman Empire, and other churches that actually did try, they just weren't that successful. Another way to look at it, if you remember a couple weeks ago, was the challenge that it is for Christians to sort of walk the narrow road. There we go. Remember, this, this is from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, Pilgrim's Progress is all about this guy who's in the city of destruction, and a guy named Evangelist comes and says, flee to the, to the celestial city. And Pilgrim does, and as on his way, he drops his burden at the cross. Well, the same journey is for us, right? We're to make our way from the city of man to the city of God. And there are two things that are constantly trying to knock us off that road, right? And if you, you're going to have to go back on the old sermons, because I don't know, it would take all day to explain what the beast is again and all that stuff. But basically, you have two things that are trying to draw you off. It's the beast and the woman, right? Chapter 13, chapter 17. The beast basically functions externally and he functions by fear. Remember, the beast was basically government and government gone wild and, and religion in service of the government was the second beast. So the religion and government seek to sort of externally force you off of your Christian walk because of, of fear or anything else. But then you have the woman, right, the harlot of Babylon, chapter 17. She tries to lure you off the road. Why would you do the hard thing of walking, you know, the, 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 keeping to the straight and narrow, if you will, walking the, the walk of sanctification and walking the gospel, when you can come over here and I'll give you everything your heart desires. Just follow the lusts of your heart. So on one hand, you have the beast trying to knock you off the road, and on the other hand, you have the woman trying to lure you off the road. And remember how I told you, the only way to stay on the road is to keep your eyes fixed at the end of the road, right? At the, Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so that's where we find ourselves now. We got to chapter 17 and everything is about to come, become undone for the world. Right? 17 started the judgment of the, the harlot and chapter 18 actually describes it in depth. We've got four points this morning and I'm, I'm going to warn you up front. I'm going to be talking really fast. So we have a warning here. We have a charge. We have a lament. Actually, there are three laments and we have a finale in two parts. Okay. So you have a warning in chapter 18, then you have a charge in chapter 18, three laments, and then a finale. So it's a long chapter, and we're going to do the whole thing. So look at verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, chapter, verse 1 through 3, you hear this. It says, After I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having a great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. 
For all the nations have drunk the wine of passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So what you're going to find out as we work our way through chapter 18 that the biggest problem that Babylon has is almost, it's almost exclusively economic. Even when it talks about sexual immorality, that's, that's really an Old Testament way of saying idolatry or saying your heart is, is wedded to something other than the true God. And so as you, the first thing you see here is an angel calls. So an angel comes down from heaven with great authority and with this authority calls out and says what? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And he says it in a past tense, but he's talking about the future. And that's just a way of them saying that this is so certain, it's already done. And when you see the city fall, it says it becomes a haunt for every unclean spirit, every unclean bird, every unclean and detestable beast. In other words, when Babylon falls, it is the exact opposite of what it is now. If you've ever watched, you know, I'm sort of a National Geographic History Channel nerd. Have you ever seen the, the show Life After People? It, it basically, the, the scientists assume, they don't, they don't assume why people disappear, but they say, what if all of a sudden people disappeared? What would happen? And it's amazing that in a matter of weeks and months and years, there would be no more buildings, everything would just be in complete and utter decay, and wild animals would be everywhere. That's what he's saying about Babylon. There is nothing redemptive left in it after it is judged. It's fallen. In fact, it's become a haunt for demons and jackals and and every bad thing. So the the judgment that is brought upon it is no small thing. And who you see the nations are indicted in verse 3. It says, For all the nations have drunk the wine and passion of her sexual immorality. One of the things you see from that verse is... For the seven churches, when they would have heard this read to them, they most definitely, when they heard Babylon is going to be judged, they would have heard Rome. There's no question they would have heard Rome. Rome was the the greatest city in the empire, and it was an unbelievably uh, lascivious, unbelievably wealthy city. They would have thought that. But when it talks here of all the nations being judged and the kings of the nations being drunk with her sexual immorality and being, being lured to her, what we're really learning here is that Babylon is not only a place, but it's sort of an ethos. It's an ethos that, that everywhere the gospel is and everywhere outside of the city of God is the city of man. In other words, we sort of live in Babylon all the time. Whether it's Kent or whether it's Seattle or whether it's San Francisco or whether it's New York, no matter where you are, the tendency of humanity is always toward Babylon. And if you look at the Old Testament, you see Babel being judged and, and uh, Babylon being judged, and Tyre, and Nineveh, and all these places, they all tend that way. But when you look next, notice the, the call that's given, or the charge in verse 4. He says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So what's going on there? So in the midst of Babylon... There's something odd happening because God calls to his people, come out of Babylon. And that's directly, almost word for word, from Jeremiah 51, which obviously we don't have time to go into. In other words, Israel was taken into to exile, or Judah was taken into Israel, exile in Babylon. And at some point, remember Jeremiah, he says, it's going to be a long time. Seek the peace of the city, buy property, get settled in. And by the end of Jeremiah, God calls them out, come out of exile. And you see in the Old Testament, there are really two major ways that God talks about salvation. One of them is Exodus, and one of them 
is exile. They were coming out of exile. Remember in the Exodus, God delivers Israel from Egypt and into the promised land, or at least that's the promise. And in exile, he deli- from exile, he delivers them out of exile and back to the promised land. And the problem where Israel always failed, and the problem, frankly, where you and I fail, is we always only ever believe the first part of that promise and we forget the second part. Remember, the first part is I will deliver you from your bondage. The second part is I will finish the job. Israel really struggled with believing that God would finish the job and therefore they languished in the desert for years. You and I, a lot of us languish in our own personal deserts, in our own wilderness, not because things are so bad, but because we really don't believe that God is going to finish the job. Sure, I trusted Jesus, but is he really going to finish the job? Is he really going to take care of me to the very end? And here, what we see is him calling people out of Babylon. And so what's, what's it mean to be called out of Babylon on one hand when you live in Babylon on the other hand? And the bottom line is we leave Babylon spiritually. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 6 and 7, you have this whole idea of lex talionis, which is a fancy Latin way of saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right, that Babylon treated people this way, and so therefore uh, Babylon will be treated this way. And then how quickly will the judgment come? In verse 8, he says, For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So on one hand, you see in the the verses 6 and 7 that Babylon has almost become smug. She's become cocky. And what's been said of her, she's basically said, I'll never be a widow. I'll never be poor. Nothing will ever happen to me. And the prophet says, no, that everything is going to happen to you. You will lose everything. And how quickly will it be? In a single day. Now, is that literal? Probably not. But the point is, and you've heard me say this over and over again, that there is coming a time when there will be no more time. You see the first three verses that we looked at where I said there were a warning? They're a warning because if you're, if you're a citizen of Babylon exclusively, you need to come out of Babylon. And the charge is, if you're a Christian, you also need to keep coming out of Babylon. In other words, as long as you still have time to read the text, there's still time to interact with it and to react to it. And so the question is, is whether or not you're a, a citizen of the city of God or the city of man. How do you become a a citizen of the city of God? Well, you do it through the person and work of Jesus, by trusting him. I'm moving through some stuff quickly because I want to get to some other things. So the question is, the the practical question is, how do we live in Babylon? On one hand, the prophets have come out of Babylon. On the other hand, you look around yourself, we are surrounded by Babylon. And the answer, at least one of the answers, is in this uh, epistle to Dionysus written by a fellow named Athenagoras. They had all the cool names in the second century. Um, I, want you to ju- I want you to read this to you because this is how what one person explained what Christians were like in the first or second century. What made them different? How did the Christians then live in Babylon and Rome? And he said, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. 
Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their private lives they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet have all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they, reserve, they suffer stripes as evildoers. In other words, they lived in Babylon physically, but spiritually speaking, they were completely different. You see, there's a, there's a role that the church plays in the, it, living in the context of Babylon, and it's just this. Is every society tends toward becoming more and more like Babylon, more and more consumed with, uh, with luxury, more and more consumed with materialism and those kinds of things. And what the church is able to do, like no one else is, is actually not just confront that, but transform it to become more and more like the city of God. In other words, every city is either trending toward becoming more like Babylon or more like the city of God. And by the lifestyle of the Christians in any particular city, that city will then be transformed one way or the other. In other words, say for example in the East Hill of Kent, because of our witness, because our church is here, more and more the city of Kent should begin to look like the city of God. Right? And we're going to see how bad you know, the city of God is a haunt for demons and everyone there is just all they do is care about their luxury and what they can get. Whereas Christians, on the other hand, care about completely different things. And the question is, what's this city going to look like? What's Seattle going to look like? What's any city going to look like? As long as Christians are there, there is the possibility that it will be transformed, positively speaking. So as we continue on... In the laments, notice the first lament is the lament of kings in verse 9. It says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torments and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So I want you to notice a couple things. That you're going to see the lament of kings, you're going to see the lament of merchants, and also the lament of what I'm going to call shippers. Um, and what they all have in common is when they lament, they stand outside the city. In other words, the city only exists for their good. And as long as the city can make them more wealthy, as long as the city can make them more prosperous and make them more comfortable, they will engage with the city. But to the extent the city can't do those things anymore, they actually stand outside and watch the city fall. The difference between those people and Christians historically is that while cities have fallen, while everything has gone south, and it, whether it was plagues or anything else, is Christians actually walked into the trouble. The way that Christians change things is not by standing far off and only praying, but it's actually by entering into the suffering of the world, entering into the, to the, to the trials and tribulations of any given city. And notice what they lament. They, it says they will stand from her far off in fear of torment, and it says they weep and wail when they see the smoke of a burning. And at last, alas, for you great city, for the single hour your judgment has come. Basically, they lived in luxury with her. So the kings were made wealthy. And the kings, uh, the, the wealth, if it, you know, look it up on the Google later if you want to. Some of the, the, the ostentatious uh, practices of the Roman emperors. I can't remember the exact guy right now in my head, but one of the emperors spent $20 million in today's, uh, today's currency on just feasts in one year. Meanwhile, people are starving. 
Okay? How about the merchants? They actually whine the most, to be honest with you. Verse 11, it says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. Now, on one hand, it's a fun exercise, if by, if by fun you mean convicting, to go through the list and ask yourself, how many of these things do I have in my home right now? Probably a lot of them. What's also interesting to me, what, what caught my eye was that last part, because you notice it, all the things that are in this list are things that Rome would have had to import. So they're having to bring these things from other places. And the last thing that it says in the list is that they also brought in lots of slaves. It's been said about 20% of the Roman Empire were slaves. But did you notice it's the only thing that has a qualification? He says, and slaves, that is, human souls. That they're not sheep, they're not cattle, they're, not any, they're actual human beings that are being traded. Human beings that are being bought and sold. Human beings that are being treated as if they are animals. And the reason that that struck me is because if you're anywhere else but in the United States and maybe parts of Europe, maybe parts of South America, anywhere else in the world, that is still the case. You know that? I mean, I tried last night, you know, as I'm thinking through things, I thought, well, you know, I'll, read this, I'll watch this, this documentary on human trafficking. I made it through about 10 minutes last night. You know, in Cambodia, it, it's not uncommon for girls that are three years old and five years old to be sold to brothels at age three and five. And why are they sold at three and five? Because by the time they're 15 years old, they're too old. They're over the hill. That happens right now. Did you know that? You see, the tension that I have this morning, to be honest with you, is on one hand, you don't want to scold people. Yeah? You don't want to scold the church and say, you're not doing enough, because I don't want to do that. On the other hand, when you begin to look outside of the walls at what the world does, it makes all the pettiness that happens inside church sort of fade away. In other words, think about the things that you have complained about, whether it's church or at your own home this week. You know, maybe someone didn't wear a tie, or you didn't like this, or you didn't like that. And then realize that there are girls all over the world that are being sold into slavery and will spend their lives in brothels until they're beaten to death. An abortion? Millions. Interestingly enough, that it almost all happens to women, by the way. In China, sex-selective abortion is the, the, the order of the day. God help you if you are a female little girl in China. The documentary last night said 39,000 girls in China just disappear every year. In other words, once you get outside the walls of the church, Babylon is alive and well. And the question is, is the church engage that? Or does the church stay here and not do anything? Do we look at the, the four walls of the church? Are they sort of our little fortress? We're in here, that stuff doesn't happen, and thank God. Or these four walls, is, do we look at it, is this a retirement home? Is it a hospital? What is it? Or is it more like an operating base, a patrol base for people who are trying to engage the world. Once you get out of the four walls of the church, it's a pretty hard place. Babylon is alive and well. And the question is, is does the church engage it or do we recoil from it? And I would encourage you to engage it. And I would say the whole book of Revelation 
is saying, engage it, engage it, engage it. And you'd say, well, something bad might happen. And John would say, well, then you get to be a martyr, and then you get to stand under the altar and sing. You can't lose by engaging. But the question is, do you even crack the door to see what's going on out there? So think about that. The last thing you see is the shippers. It says, the, verse 15, the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off, um, mourning aloud. And then verse 17 it says, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade is on the sea, stand far off, crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like this great city? I think that's one of those rhetorical questions that John puts every now and then in the book of Revelation, or at least Jesus gives him. You see, the kings are, are upset because they don't have lug- they can't receive all the luxurious items anymore. And the merchants are upset because they're not wealthy anymore because they don't have anyone to sell to. And that, of course, would affect the, the shippers because they don't have anyone to make deliveries for. And the question they ask, they look at Rome burning, if you will, or, or they look at Babylon falling and say, what city is like this great city? And the answer is just this. There's no city that is like that great city, but there is one city that's better and more glorious than even that city. You see, the question is, do you lament that Babylon is falling or do you look forward in chapters 19, 20, 21, 22 and say there's a better city whose builder and maker is God. And in that city, all the kings of the earth come and they bring their glory into it. And in that city, there's no more crying, there's no more tears. Every tear is wiped away from every eye. In that city, there isn't even a need for light or for lamps because the God and the Lamb are its light. And in that city, the tree of, the tree of life that, that was banned in the Garden of Eden, it is there and all the nations have access to it. There's a city that is coming that is bigger and better and grander than anything Babylon has to offer. And so you think about that. Do I engage in this world and try and work toward that kind of city or do I just succumb and be part of this world? Let's look at the finale. There's two finales, by the way. The first description you see is in verse 21. He says, Then a mighty angel took, up, took a, a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown with, down with violence and will no more be found. So remember we've heard that millstone usage before? Jesus uses that. Matthew 18 he says, better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. What's the point of the millstone thing going on here where the angel comes and throws the millstone in? Again, it comes from Jeremiah. And basically, it just, it's the, the, a millstone would have been huge and thousands of pounds. And once you throw a millstone into the ocean, there's no recovering it. That's the bottom line. It's a simple illustration. You want to know what it's like for Babylon to fall? He chucks the millstone into the water and says, as, to the extent that that millstone will float... That's how much chance Babylon has. Zero. You throw the millstone in the water and it means that judgment is over, that, that finally there's no more to come. And what does it look like when that happens? Verse 22 and 23. He says, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpets will be heard no more. Craftsmen of any craft will be found no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard no more. And the light of the lamp will shine no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. And I summarize those things for you. There's no more money, there's no more music, there's no more food, there's no more light, there's no more joy. And that last one, if you remember in the Old Testament when God wants to say how much he cares, how excited he is about uh, his, his bride, what he says is that the Lord your God rejoices over you like what? 
like a bridegroom rejoices over her bride or his bride. And because of that, in Babylon, once judgment is finished, there is no marriage there. There is no joy. There is no light in the homes. There is nothing there. But there's another city where all of those things happen. And then look, why does this happen? Verse 23 and 24. It says, says, for your merchants were the great ones on the earth. And that's another way of saying they were uh, economic idolaters. And finally, it says, all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And finally, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So there are three reasons that are basically reiterated. There's this economic idolatry. Remember, the sorcery is really another way of saying she drew people into her idolatry. And then the last thing, she killed the saints, which means this whole passage is really an answer, like much of the book of Revelation is, to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. In the fifth seal, remember the saints are saying, God, how long until we are avenged of our deaths? And God is doing it right here, which is why they rejoice, not because people are being harmed, in verse 20, but because God's justice is being meted out. And so what does that mean, you know, to bring things to a close? We know the reason for her idolatry. Where, where, do you take, where do you take this passage? Where do you take, you know, chapter 18? Because, okay, we read the, the fall of Babylon. Well, it's really consistent with the rest of the letter. And as I thought of it, like, how do you bring, you know, bring some kind of summary to this? What immediately came to mind was Treebeard. You remember Treebeard, right, from The Lord of the Rings? If you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, it's been out as a movie for a long time. You've been living under a rock. But if you remember in The Lord of the Rings, there's basically this huge battle between good and evil. And there's one party in the middle of this huge battle between good and evil that has remained neutral the whole time, and it's the Ents. And remember, the Ents are are basically tree shepherds, and they are older than even the elves. They're so old, no one even knows how old they are. They're older than dirt, literally. And the thing is, remember about Ents, is not only are they neutral, but they are so incredibly slow, it drives me crazy. Like ants, if I was a hobbit, I would go crazy. Because remember, anything an ant says is said very slow. Don't be hasty. Remember that? And the hobbits are saying, what are you going to do? The world is falling down around us. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And finally, when the ants decide to, to enter into the battle, it's because they realize something. And it's the same thing that I want you as a Christian to realize, or if you're not a Christian, to think about. And it's just this. Here's what Treebeard, how he describes their decision. He says, if we stayed at home and did nothing, doom would find us anyway, sooner or later. That thought has been long growing in our hearts, and that is why we are marching now. In other words, the ends thought, you know, we can try and be neutral and we can just stay at home and hope that everything works out around us. But they realized that eventually doom would find them. Eventually the war would find them. And so he decided we might as well enter into the fray rather than let the fray come to us. And at the end of the day, what the book of Revelation is saying over and over and over and over again is this. Doom will find you. Doom will find you. The war will find you. You can't just stay in church. The, the, the purpose of church is not to make sure you have a nice country club and a nice place in order to, to hang out with people you know and all that kind of stuff. That's part of it. But part of it is to be prepared for this battle that is constantly being waged all around us. And the question is, will you engage that? Will you engage that? Will we engage that as a church? 
Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would just come. This is an incredibly long text. We could have taken weeks to look at it, and yet we've looked at it right now, and I pray that you would just bring clarity to it, bring clarity to the fact that we need to be constantly uh, in this world, but not of it, constantly being, being transformative agents in this world, but also not be drawn to it. And Father, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes. I pray as a church that you would help us to continue to be more and more outwardly faced. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen.